Osiris. Hey, this is Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters, and this podcast is part of the Osiris podcast family. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts connecting music fans with conversation, commentary, and music. Osiris works in partnership with Relics. Check them out for all kinds of new music, news, and information. Osiris. One, two, three, four, five, six. Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. Hi, I'm Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 35 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself generally utilize the music of fish as a means of getting the means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. These are generally non-jam bands because we love fish. We are fish fans. Problem with fish fans is quite simply, they listen to too much fish, they get myopic, they get boring at dinner parties, they can recount stats from any fish show at any fish time in any fish era, but when they get asked about other bands, they look incredibly stupid, much like our uh, the guy who claims that he's president looks right now and having to face North Korea because he's getting played. Don't you get played. That's why I listen to this podcast. Yeah, I was at a networking event last week, and I asked people if they wanted to quiz me on the longest tweezers between 36 minutes and 45 minutes, and everyone just gave me a blank stare. So I changed the subject and immediately started talking about the war on drugs. Mm, drink. So we are here. We are here in episode 35 talking about a very underrated, really excellent jam from the year 2000. We think you guys are going to really enjoy. This is the Down with Disease from September 12th, 2000 at Great Woods Amphitheater in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Really excited to talk about this one here. Yeah, this is one that um, I think I have on a Burns CD somewhere with a bunch of other shows from September 2000, but really hadn't thought about it until recently. So Some of the themes that we're going to tackle in this episode include September 2000, A Base Odyssey. The end of an era, and I'm in love with Massachusetts. And on that note, let's get to the fish. Why are we talking about the Down with Disease from September 12th, 2000? Well, we kind of looked around and realized that 35 episodes into Beyond the Pond, we've yet to feature a jam that properly highlights Mike Gordon's bass wizardry. So we want to talk a bit about Mike here tonight. 
And following the 1999 stage realignment where Mike shifted to center stage, Fish came right behind him, and Trey and Page were positioned on the fringes of the stage. The bass really took over in Fish's sound, and this really led to an era of the of music that was groove-driven, it was more ambient, it was more minimalistic, and really was kind of a culmination of the jamming that they'd been playing since Remain in Light. So when I listen to this jam, I think the part we're going to focus on, I believe, is probably around 12 minutes in. This is a really driving thick bass jam that almost kind of touches upon the krautrock genre at points due to the use of the motoric beat which can be heard in such highlights of the genre such as wilco spiders noise hallow gallo and even more recently steve malcolm's kite which uh now do you two cover much as we would like to hear uh steve malcolm's play that song his kite is a totally different krautrock jam that uh at times bears some similarity to what Mike Gordon and the boys are doing here. Totally. And kind of from a larger perspective, you know, you hear it in songs like my left toe and what's the use came out in early 1999 during that tour. These songs allowed Mike to create more ambiance in their overall songs and really showcased the desire for the band to allow the bass to dictate their songs thematic direction rather than just relying on uh, Trey's buildup and heroic guitar solos. Um, so like Dave was saying, you know, this particular version, it, it has a uh, really strong down disease theme jam. It goes for about 10 or 11 minutes. And then Mike really takes over and guides the jam through five to six minutes of very kraut rock heavy bass jamming. This is slow. It's prodding. It's groove driven. It sounds wholly like the millennial sound that the band was focused on in 1999 and 2000. And is a very, very far cry from the frenetic guitar-heavy nature of their 1993 to 1995 peaks and a very distant cousin of that sort of dirty, bluesy psychedelia of 2.0. And this this jam really tends to represent the sound wholly unique to this era. Yeah, and the jam, it ends with a very big tray-led peak with uh, it's kind of him just messing up uh, with his volume swells to build upon the foundation that Mike established. So um, really, it's a perfect example of some of the best aspects of Fish in 2000. They build a groove over five to six minutes. They can improvise over it in really euphoric ways that it doesn't sound much like the rest of their career. And it's the jam itself never really leaves type one, but it doesn't really have to. I mean, I, I wasn't at this show, but based upon how it sounds, I wouldn't be surprised if Trey leaves the stage and just like take a whiz and then comes back because <laughs> you kind of don't miss him at a point. No, it's all Mike, and there's a lot of jams from this era that are like it. Um, you know, my my thoughts immediately go to the uh, December third, ninety nine, Sand and the Limb by Limb, the May twenty second, two thousand, Ghost. Oh, God. It's one of the greatest versions of that song ever played. It really is, and and that is such a Mike-led jam. Mike comes up with just such creative lines that pushes that song so far. Um, Camden, uh, July 4th, 2000, the Jibu and Twist, very, very Mike-heavy, and a ton of stuff that happened in the fall, including the Piper from the show before here, uh, Great Woods, the Tube from Hershey, and um, pretty much the entirety of... Blossom's uh, 918-2000 set, too. Just 
really, really four song set, four song set. And this is just such a choice era for Mike Gordon fans. Also, we have the September 20th, 2000. It's ice from outside Cincinnati and September 24th, 2000 in cities up in the XL Center, I think. Up in St. Paul, Minneapolis, cities for the Twin Cities. Also, yours truly's 21st birthday. Wasn't up in Minneapolis, but was rather uh, being 21 years old in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So, good jam, good night, all around. So, in terms of kind of stepping back and talking about this show, this run, and kind of the era in general. Um, so, 9-12-2000 is the second night of a two-night run at Great Woods during the band's final tour of 1.0. Uh, the run famously opens up on 9-11-2000 with a cover of the Modern Lovers' Roadrunner, a song which features the line repeated throughout, I'm in love with Massachusetts, delivered to absolutely raucous cheers here. If, if you want to hear one of the best crowd reactions on an odd, on an odd copy of a late, uh, two, or late 90s, late 2000s, Fish show, just throw on 911 2000. The band go or the crowd goes absolutely insane when Trey yells out. So set one of this show features a pretty solid MoMA dance, about like 12 minutes. Gorgeously extended Type 1 Yamar, very solid stash to close it out. And then in the second set, it's just a really fantastic late 1.0 second set. You get extended Choctaw's Torture, very slow and groovy twist, and a long bass heavy piper, which is also very, very mic-centric in the second half. Segways into what's the use, capped off by a huge, huge you enjoy myself. So, like I said, that Piper is extremely mic heavy. It's got a very funky syncopated jam. It doesn't have much to do with the blinding speed of most 2000 Pipers, but you know, it just shows that Mike was very much in his zone over these two shows. We know that he's originally from the greater Boston area. Maybe he had family in the crowd. I don't know, but... Cheers to you, Mike Gordon. Yeah, and the show that this down disease comes from, 912, it's a little bit of a less of a hit you over the head show than 911 is, but still has some really excellent moments throughout. Set one ends with a closing segment of first tube in a divided sky and then Wilson to cap it off. Really just pure energy and kind of three songs you never really think of going together, but flow together quite nicely here. Um, and then set two. The down disease that we're going to play here, the heavy things gets pretty loose, and the uh, split open and melt jam is a really, really fantastic. Very tight version, but really excellent, kind of stretched out, tight uh, split open and melt midway through that second set. And of note, so from here, this is the fourth show of the Fall 2000 tour. The band will play four more weeks before taking a 27-month break. The shows in Darien, Hershey, Meriwether Post, Blossom, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Vegas would really showcase what the band still had left as there were great jams, 
some killer sets uh, th uh, throughout, some humor throughout the whole uh, the, the, this whole run. However, it became increasingly clear, particularly in the tour's final week, that a break was not only in order, but was somewhat overdue. Yeah, the only shows that I saw on this run were the tour openers. It'd be uh, September 8th and September 9th up in Albany. I think September, I mean, both of them were fine. I think September 8th was a slightly better of the two. It, to me, it kind of had a feeling of going down with the ship. Like, they opened up that night with the first version of uh, the Bob Marley cover, Mellow Mood, people love, and I thought, oh, that's great. You're playing new song, new cover. You're playing Windora Bug. But you guys are basically kind of going on hiatus with no certain end. So, F you guys at, at the same time. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I actually uh, I had tickets to September 16th at Meriwether Post, which was the next Saturday. But I sold my ticket because I frankly got a little bit scared because for anybody who had to drive really anywhere after that second Albany show was on the, um, the Taconic Parkway. Basically, it was treated to the thickest fog I've ever driven in in my life. It was incredibly thick. Things were going incredibly slow. There may have been two people I didn't know very well in the back of my car tripping on acid and didn't realize what kind of danger they were in. But it was a very, very scary drive home about two weeks shy of my 21st birthday. And I kind of didn't feel like tempting fate with another late night drive. So that and I kind of felt, you know, like the band is breaking up. So who knows what's going to happen? So I ended up selling my Meriwether ticket. Missed a really, really good mango song at that show. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. But yeah, I mean, I will say that I have a lot of burned CDs of September 2000, but I also have a, a lot of blind spots, especially in that last week. I don't know it all that well, kind of because I felt, all right, these guys are at the end of the rope. They're going to break up. They're going to go on a hiatus. I'm going to graduate college and start a different portion of my life. So let's see what else is out there like other than fish. Totally, totally. And um, you definitely hear it in this in this in this month. It's um, there's some really good stuff in there as always. I mean, it's hard for fish to go on the road for a month long tour and not play a couple standout shows. That's just kind of the nature of the live stage really is their home. But, you know, I know Trey mentions in interviews that following Big Cypress, the band really you know, him and Fishman walked off the stage and said, should we just break up now? Um, you know, it almost feels like the 2000 year in and of itself, while there's some great moments, was kind of an addendum on uh, 1.0 in and of itself. And, you know, one note, I mean, this uh, Great Woods run really features some great energy from the band. And we would highly recommend you guys seek out these shows and listen to them because they really showcase kind of the band at their best towards this end of their career uh, or the first chapter of their career. And while we here at BTP, we are ardent defenders and promoters of Fish 2.0. Um, for many fans, it really wouldn't be until late summer 2009 that they'd ever hear Fish play with the kind of energy and really you know, intentional purposefulness that they did here in the final run at Great Woods. And all this got us thinking about some of the best Massachusetts fish shows. This kind of ties in with the theme. I'm in love with Massachusetts. It's a great state to see fish in. There's some great venues. Um, so we kind of went through some of the Massachusetts fish shows that have been played over the last 
30 odd years, came up with a list that we think uh, really represents the best of the best. And you guys will notice the theme here. Um, so kicking things off, we've got January 26, 1989, their first gig at the Paradise. Really, really important uh, show for the band. 1231-93 at the Centrum in Worcester, Massachusetts. 7894 at Great Woods. And 630-1995 at Great Woods. What else we got, Dave? What did they do at that July of 1994 show? I think that they played Gamehenge. They absolutely played Gamehenge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. December 4th, 1995, uh, from the Mullen Center in Amherst. November 28th, 1997, from the Worcester Centrum. Catch me on the right day. I'll say that's the best fish I've ever seen in person. Easily top five. Um, one year later, November 27th, 1998, from the Centrum. That was uh, set to Choctaw's Torture Madness. That was a live fish release. February 26th, 2003, at, yep, Worcester Centrum. Uh, June 7th, 2012, from the Centrum in Worcester, Massachusetts. Very important show after a very uh, terrible, I guess is the best way to put it, 2011 New Year's Eve run. The, the two shows at the Centrum uh, in early June 2012 really reset fish and let them towards an excellent 2012 tour. Um, and then October 25th and 26th from the Centrum in Worcester, Mass. Those games were... During the World Series, there was a lot of people out in the hallway watching the Red Sox game. There's a lot of energy with the band rooting on the Red Sox. There's some updates from the stage. I would go on record saying that October 25th is the best show of the fall tour. I know that I will get a lot of hate for that, but um, hey, that's why. That's that's my opinion. I'm sticking to it, all right? It's a great show. I don't agree, but it's really good. I mean, that's like. I won't think that you're crazy. Old school that. energy. Yeah, it was a hell of a show. But yeah, words can't speak enough of that uh, June 7, 2012 show. I think that was a Thursday night. I mean, it's just weird to have a summer tour opener indoors. And that show wasn't even sold out. But they just threw the fuck down at that show. That second set boogie on Reggae Woman. That's uh, Karini that's, that goes yeah. into basically on my left toe jam. Uh, there's a great, really kind of weird ghost in there. They open up the show and the tour with Buried Alive and then close out the second set with it. I mean, that was just a super zany show that just showcased, I think, for the entire fan base that, all right, whatever happened at MSG in December was an anomaly. Don't we worry are, about it. We're focused, and that, too, that summer ended with uh, the Fuck Your Face Dick's Light, Dick's Sand run that really set the band towards where they are right now. So if you haven't listened to June 7, 2012 in a while, highly recommend it. That is a transformative show for where we are right now in 3.0. And on that note, let's listen to some awesome Massachusetts fish with the Down Disease from September 12, 2000.
right. Hope that you guys enjoyed that segment of the September 12th, 2000 Down Disease. So our first segment of music that we're going to talk about here focuses on the Bass Odyssey. The album that I'm going to talk about, the band I'm going to talk about, it's a band called Dark Side. The song I'm going to play is Paper Trails off their 2013 album Psychic. So Dark Side is a Nicholas Jar side project with the multi-instrumentalist Dave Harrington. And the, de- the duo put out their debut LP and still only release uh, Psychic in the fall of 2013. So Jar and Harrington met at Brown University, and where Harrington joined Jar on his 2011 tour in support of his fantastic 2011 record, Space is Only Noise. If you haven't heard that record, please do so now. So this record, Psychic, and the whole Dark Side project really takes Jar's late night, sultry, electro-ambient music and adds a layer of psychedelia to it. It's a thematically brilliant record, one that really needs to be listened to as a complete piece. It's a short record. Uh, so I think it's only like seven or eight tracks and just over 40 minutes long. So it's really easy to digest and it just really enters this kind of zone of late night groove that you fall into in like at like 1, one thirty in the morning. And for me, I listen to this record constantly when I was living in Asia and always brings me back to like hazy, just neon lights that are blasting through the city as you're driving through in a taxi. Um, this was my third favorite record of 2013. And I would still say that this is a top 20 album of the decade. This is the closest that Nicholas Jar, an artist who I particularly love uh would come to rock and roll and really is the best opportunity for him to extend his sound into extended jams as him and harrington tend to do during live performances um the opening track on this record golden arrow is stretches just over 11 minutes and then there are a couple other tracks on the album that are nearly eight minutes seven minutes and nearly six minutes so it's got some songs that really stretch themselves out which is great and you can imagine the live setting these going 15 20 minutes and you never really get sick of them um so the duo did release a uh album on soundcloud not a proper studio album called random access memories memories in the summer 2013 which was a remixing of Daft Punk's LP from that year. And though that was received with far more excitement than uh, remixes really ever are, it wasn't until Psychic came out that the band really found their own. However, Sasha Fair Jones of The New Yorker called Random Access Memories Memories one of the best records of that year. So like I said, Psychic came out in October. It's provided for me to be the better end of the world dance party to anything that Arcade Fire attempted to do on Reflector. And and, uh, the song Paper Trails, which we're going to play here, really showcases the bass as both Nicholas Jar using his vocals and Dave Harrington's bass laid on a groove here that establishes the overall theme of the song, allowing the guitar from Dave Harrington to really come into play. So you hear this in a very similar way to the way Fish was approaching the fall of 2000 jamming, where Mike would lay down a really heavy groove, and then the band themselves would kind of page and tray, would sort of like trickle in with melodies, really adding to these jams that slowly built over time. So we're going to go ahead and listen to the song Paper Trails here by Dark Side off of Psychic. Hope that you guys enjoy this.
taking us uh, through dark side as I was telling you earlier Dave Harrington for uh, beyond the pond listeners in the greater New York City area if you like him you can often see him playing alongside uh, alongside Joe Russo in many spots in Brooklyn and in the East Village when uh, when Joe Russo is not paying the bills at J-Rad, he likes playing much smaller gigs with dudes like Dave Harrington, often as a sideman. And some of that stuff they put together, it's fantastic. So the album that I'm going to talk about, album and band, the band is Primal Scream. The album is called Vanishing Point from 1997. And the song I'm going to play for you is called Burning Wheel, opening track in the album. Now, careful listeners will know this is not the first time I've talked about Primal Scream. I think that would have been, um, we talked about the Screamadelica album when we were talking Episode about... Episode 11. Sorry? Episode 11. Yeah, that's right. It was Episode 11, which would have been um, one of our Baker's Dozen episodes. I think we were talking about the tube from Powdered Night. And that was Night 5 and how that had a very baggy, dancey groove that kind of reminded us of uh, Primal Scream from 1991. However, Primal Scream was one of those bands that they really, with each album, is like a different genre. They like genre hopping from album to album. And then the one that they put out in 1997, six years in Screamadelica, called Vanishing Point, this was their very dub-bass-influenced psychedelic album. They had one that came out in 1994, Give Up But Don't Give Up, which was very kind of Rolling Stones knockoff, had a kind of semi-MTV semi hit in the song Rocks. But in 1997, it was Vanishing Point. This is uh, an album, this is a bass odyssey in every sense of the word. So in between albums, they got a new bass player. They got uh, this guy named Manny Moonfeld, who was actually the bass player from the Stone Roses, who are uh, very much known for their thick, almost kind of post-punk bass lines. So once they had this guy on board, they had uh, a bass monster who was just dying to get out. And really... A lot of people think of this album as being Primal Screen's Quaalude album because a lot of it's kind of like it's dark, it's nighttime, and it really has many, many thick bass grooves. Certainly, uh, the specters of Lee Scratch Perry 
and Augustus Pablo, who's uh, known for the melodica, which is featured heavily in one song, Looms Large. And Burning Wheel is the opening track. It's essentially, it's a dub bass odyssey. It's a basically, it's a thick bass line surrounded by all sorts of swishing instruments and this whooshingness. You hear lots of panning from headphone to headphone. Whenever I get a new stereo and I want to test it out, the first thing I always do is put on Vanishing Point because it's probably one of the best albums in which to uh, test out new hi-fi equipment. So in addition to this song, it's got a song called Kowalski, which is essentially just a huge bass line people have described as a Panzer tank. It's got a song called Stuka. It's got Long Life. Um, it has a cover of the song Motorhead by the band Motorhead. But really, throughout, the bass lines are emphasized heavily, and I think none more so on this song. So I recommend this album highly, and I would absolutely recommend the follow-up being 2000's Exterminator, which, in addition to awesome bass lines, they also uh, got Kevin Shields from... My Bloody Valentine on board for that album. You can just imagine how fucked up that could get. So, but let's listen to Burning Wheel by Primal Scream off of the Vanishing Point album in 1997. Quick break here, return of a very popular segment, new album recommendations. Just for those of you guys keeping tabs at home, yes, we are going to do a top five albums of 2018 thus far episode. That should be dropping here pretty soon. Not sure if it's going to be the next one or the one after that. We're still trying to figure that out, but um, we have actively been listening to a lot of new music, especially as of late. There's some great music that came out over the last uh, week or two. So much so that Dave and I had a ton of trouble trying to figure out what we wanted to feature here for you guys, but we'll definitely talk about all that in the best albums of 2018 thus far episode that will come here soon. For now, I want to focus on a new record from a Chicago singer-songwriter, guy who plays in the style of psychedelic English folk of the late 1960s. I'm talking about Riley Walker and his new record, Death Men Glance. So Riley Walker plays on a BTP favorite label, the Dead Oceans label. You can find Caliphon, Cite, Destroyer, The Dirty Projectors, Juliana Barwick, Krungobin, am I pronouncing that name correctly? Uh, Krungbin. Yeah, kind of. 
Crongan, <laughs> Mark McGuire, Kevin Morby, Phosphor Espen, Slow Dive, and Strand of Oaks. Some really, really fantastic re- album or some really fantastic artists that you guys have heard us talk about. And if you haven't listened to, go and check some of those guys out. They're fantastic. The jam kids love Cronbin. They're on the fucking jam cruise. Probably like the first are. and only ever Dead Oceans band to be on jam cruise. <laughs> <laughs> They can grow down Humphreys McGee. So Riley Walker's Deathman Glance is his first album since 2016. And this follows Primrose Green in 2015. And then his 2016 release Golden Sings that have been sung, which were his best works to that point. The former coming across like an updated version of Astral Reeks, and the latter being his first true dive into guitar exploration and sonic psychedelia. Uh, Deathman Glance is kind of a marrying of these styles, though it leans a little bit closer towards Golden Sings, and this is an early top five album release for me. The lyrics here are some of Walker's best. The songs are his most complete and really fascinating. And one can really imagine how strong these songs will come across in the live setting. Um, Of note, and I think it's really worth noting, Riley Walker is not just a musician. His Instagram feed is one of my favorites of all musicians that I follow. It's no holds bar. And his Twitter's hysterical, you're right. Uh, it's a Knowles Holds Bar exploration of tour life, plus phenomenal recommendations of the seediest Chicago diners and burrito spots. So definitely get on following him on any social media as well as listening to him. He's just a really endearing, hysterical, uh, kind of just, you know, really relishes in being embarrassed type of public figure, um, but an absolutely fantastic guitarist and a really excellent songwriter who really feels like he's making a turn here with Deaf Men Glance. So definitely, definitely encourage you guys check this out. Dave, what do you got for us? I have the fourth album from a band called Ice Age, and the album is called Beyondless. I mean, I think it's pronounced Ice Age. It's not Ice Age, two words. It's like one word, but they seem to pronounce Ice Age or Ice Age, so we'll go with that. So this is the band's fourth album. They're all very handsome, young Danish kids, and they're in their mid-20s. They've actually uh, been playing and recording since uh, they were like all 17 and 18 years old, and their early albums kind of showcased a very young, feral, hardcore band kind of scary and sloppy at the same time but now with the fourth album that they have really matured a little bit uh the last record came out i think in 2014 so it was a little bit of a longer layoff than usual now they're kind of like the young answer to great gothic euro bands like nick cave and the bad seeds or pj harvey or more recently savages i mean god i have been lapping this album up with a fucking spoon this is hitting my sweet spots for artsy, gothic, European rock and roll with, um, I guess you could call them post-punk. Sort of that's how they have been described as a bit. I just think that they're a really adventurous rock and roll band. There's 10 songs. Every song does something cool at some point. Um, they each sound unique. 
The second song, Painkiller, is a duet with uh, Sky Ferreira, who uh, put out her own great album back in 2013. And she's done some duets with um, like Bobby Gillespie from Primal Scream most recently. I think she has another full end coming out at some point. It's been a long time coming. But that song, Painkiller, is just a catchy glam rock glitter bomb of a song where Sky Ferreira plays the PJ Harvey to uh, the Ice Age frontman. Elias Ronenfeld's Nick Cave, and it's probably my favorite song of the year so far. This is my album of the year so far. If you've uh, watched the TV show Peaky Blinders about the um, like British gangsters, World War II era, you know that soundtrack has lots of, uh, it's like Arctic Monkeys, Blackwell Motorcycle Club, PJ Harvey, Nick Cave features very prominently, just like, you know, kind of high-end, goth rock and post-punk and all these songs look like they could really slide into the soundtrack of that show and that's that's high praise coming from me because it's a great show and those are great songs but i would recommend this album to anybody who wants to hear some fucking feral rock and roll because it's it's really been delivering on all accounts like the one of those bands that with every one of their prior albums kind of on paper with their influences being the Stooges and, um, you know, the more gothic side of post-punk, they've always sounded like a band on paper I should really enjoy. And their last album, Plowing Into the Field of Love, I came close to really liking. I'm thinking these guys are really close to clicking. Well, it happened. It clicked. And this is one of the albums of the year. So that's... uh, Ice Age Beyondless. All right. So moving into our final segment here, we're going to talk about the end of an era. The Down with Disease that we played from September 12th, 2000 at Great Woods comes at the start of the band's final tour before the end of 1.0. They go on a hiatus through the remainder of 2000, all of 2001, and the majority of 2002, ending with the 1231-2002 show at Madison Square Garden. We want to talk about a couple bands here that reached an end of an era themselves and put out some pretty excellent work here right before they concluded um, either their entire career or perhaps the first part. Sometimes it's unknown, especially in this day of rock music that has never is never dead. Um, So the band I'm going to talk about is one that's very near and dear to my heart. I don't believe I've talked about this band as a band on Beyond the Pond here, which is quite shocking because I love them like crazy. They're one of my favorite bands in the last 20 years. It is The Walkmen. I'm going to talk about their final album in 2012, Heaven. And I'm going to feature the song, The Love You Love. So The Walkmen emerged from the ashes of the band Jonathan Fire Eater, one of the precursor bands to the early aughts New York City rock revival. And the Walkman then grew into one of the most respected indie rock bands of the first decade of the 20th century. And if you ever want to read a cautionary tale about a band that almost made it, but fell flat on its face, do yourself a favor, read the first few chapters of Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. Tells a great story of Jonathan Fire Eater almost becoming the band in New York City before they weren't. So in terms of the Walkman, they started playing music together right around 1999, 2000, and they preferred throughout their entire career recording on vintage instruments, 
did much of their recording during the formative periods of their of their career at the Marcata Studios in Harlem. They released their debut album, Everyone Who Pretended to Like Me Is Gone, in 2002, and were promptly compared to everyone from The Strokes to The Cure to early U2. I'd argue that this record falls somewhere between the immediate impact of The Strokes' This Is It and the forgotten nature of the national self-titled debut. It's got some really great songs. It flows pretty well overall, but I think more than uh, um, a lot of the debuts record debut records that were coming out at the time, thinking Interpol, thinking The Strokes, took the band a couple of albums to really figure out themselves. In 2004, they put out Bows and Arrows, which was a bigger release and included the song The Rat, which is probably the most intense display of the band's playing and lead singer Hamilton Lighthouser's vocals ever put to tape. And a big influence on uh, Beyond the Pond favorites, Gang of Youths. Yes, that song sounds like a very early precursor to Go Farther in Lightness. Some would argue, and I believe Dave included, that their album uh, You and Me represented the peak of their career. Is that correct for you? Yeah, 2008's You and Me. That's uh, It could bring grown men to whiskey-soaked tears type of record. My God. Well, in that, in that aspect that you just highlighted of the Walkman is really the thing that always appeals to me. They feel like every one of their songs feels like a just divorced young man sitting in a tiny bar in Manhattan while it rains outside, just drinking one glass of brown liquor after another. And it makes that sentiment feel so good. I don't know why. Mm. But yeah, certainly... You and me, especially the song I Lost You, which to me is the ultimate Walkman song. That's my favorite album of theirs. I mean, I think uh, they don't have any bad albums. Some are better than others, but that's that's my favorite, clearly. I would personally argue, and I think this might be controversial amongst Walkman fanatics, their next two releases, 2010's Lisbon and 2012's Heaven, are their best. Lisbon is a record that's sonically similar to its host city. It's airy, it's sparse, it's melancholically melodic, it's very slow moving. Songs like Juvenile, Stranded, All My Great Designs, and While I Shovel the Snow are perfect representations of the overall themes that the band was going for on the record. And the song Angela's Surf City is really the latter day representation of the rat. Their final record to this point, Heaven, which was released in 2012, always felt like a closing of a chapter, even from the moment it was released before they ever announced it was their last record. Many of the themes uh, throughout focus on the band's friendship and love for each other, as well as writings on raising kids and starting families. The young dad listeners out here will absolutely find multiple songs on Heaven to relate to, and the artwork within the album is just based around the band with their kids, all in very formal wear. It's a clear picture of where the band was at this point and really feels much like a reunion with your buddies from college, all of whom now have kids. The kind of images that showcase a desire for friends to continue where they left off, even though everyone knows their current life won't allow that and they'll never return to that place that they were in their youth. Heaven was my favorite album of 2012. 
and has grown into a top 10 album of the 2010s for me. It meant a great deal to me during 2013 while I was living in Korea, away from all my friends, knowing life was going to be different whenever I returned home, and has continued to make a great mean a great deal to me as I became a dad myself this decade, and I've gone through uh, you know personal highs and lows through that that period. It's just a record that I put on, and I just like feel a lot. Songs like We Can't Be Beat, Love is Luck, Heartbreaker, The Witch, Southern Heart, Line by Line, Song for Lee, The Love You Love, Heaven, Dreamboat. I mean, I just listed like 10 out of the 12 songs on the record. You didn't just, What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's a great song as well. I just didn't want to go through. I, I didn't want to <laughs> say the whole. I didn't know what to do. I started writing every song. <laughs> I mean, this is just an album of excellent songwriting with each song thematically spilling into the next. The Walkman would go on hiatus in 2013, and since then I haven't shown any signs of reuniting. With Hamilton Lighthouse are releasing excellent solo material with Rostam on 2016's I Had a Dream That You Were Mine, an album that we focused on in episode 5, and Matt Barrick playing with Fleet Foxes. It's really not clear if they ever will reunite. The hope is that they do, but if they don't, Heaven Can Go Down is one of the quintessential amical breakup albums that any band has ever released so with on that i want to play the love you love by the walkman off of 2012's heaven In terms of my end of an era band, I'm going to talk about a band from the early 2000s. I'm going to talk about a trio of Welsh lager louts called McCluskey. And the album I'm going to talk about is 2002's Do Dallas. And the song is To Hell With Good Intentions. So McCluskey consisted of um, Andy Falco Falcus. Jonathan Chappell on bass and Matt Harding on drums. So uh, Matt Harding was actually, uh, he was sacked from the band, I think, in between their second and third records. But the band, when they were doing this, they kind of forgot that he was um, their webmaster. So, like, hilarity ensued for a few days as he basically hijacked the McCluskey website and did, like, some really funny things to it. So 
But this band, they put out three records. Um, in 2000, they put out My Pain and Sadness is Far More Painful and Sad Than Yours. In 2002, they put out Do Dallas. And in 2004, they put out The Difference Between Me and You is That I'm Not on Fire. And you can see based upon these album titles, the kind of uh, rather sardonic sharp tongue sense of humor that they're going for. And all these records were recorded by uh, Steve Albini, who was a really big fan. They sound like Steve Albini records. They definitely have uh, the Albini drum sound, the heavy, deep, surfer rosa, really thick bass sound. And uh, their brand of rock and roll was very angular, very bass heavy, and insanely snarky. Um, I, they kind of seem like guys that you've been watching you would watch like an English Premier League football game with although uh Andy Falcus tends to be uh far more intelligent it's almost like a Monty Python sense of humor they have these really crazy non sequiturs like uh they have a song called Garrett Brown says that starts by saying all of your friends are coons your mother is a ballpoint pen thief I mean it sounds uh better in the context of the album. But they're catchy as hell, they're clever as hell, and their 2002 album, McCluskey Do Dallas, that's their peak record. It's just song after song of these ridiculous phrases. I think um, the music critic and fish fan Rob Mitchum re- uh, reviewed the 2002 album for Pitchfork, and he had a great line, something like, these seem like dudes who just found like a live landmine and they can't wait to throw rocks at it. And that really makes complete sense. So I was fortunate enough to actually, um, I saw them live twice. I saw them at the Mercury lounge in New York city, I think in, uh, I want to say 2003 and this venue holds 300 people. And you know how, um, you know, people always say there was only five people in the audience, but they played like it was like a big arena. Well, that wasn't the case. It was uh, they seemed kind of irritated by the small crowd and uh, their lack of enthusiasm in the performance sort of reflected this. But uh, the second time I saw them was in November of 2004 at uh, this place called Ulu, which stands for the University of London Union. I was uh, it was just over American Thanksgiving. I was visiting my sister, who uh, was student teaching up in London at the time. And at this McCluskey show, it was totally packed with like college age kids that were knew every lyric, and they were jumping up and down and screaming and kind of play moshing. And the band fed off of it, and it was really one of like the greatest rock shows I have ever seen it was like seeing the Beatles at Shea Stadium like every what you picture in your mind as rock shows everyone totally clued into the stage jumping up and down singing moshing throwing pints of carling in the air um the singer Andy Falcons was like taking down hecklers and making jokes it was just an incredibly good rock show and in fact this show is actually uh it was released because um McCluskey they put out a long-winded hits, B-sides, Oz and Saz album called McCluskeyism, and the live show that I saw is actually uh, was recorded, and they keep all of the great stage banter intact, like some 
heckler in the crowd, Scrouch screams like, why is your drummer such a fucking pussy? And then the singer just destroys him. It's awesome. So I think that was their final headlining gig. After that, I think they played one more show as the opening act for Steve Albini's band Shellac. And I remember getting home and telling all my friends, I've seen the future of rock and roll. It's McCluskey, if these guys can just hang on a bit. That was in November of 2004, and by January 2005, they broke up because they claimed that they couldn't stand to be in each other's presence anymore. <laughs> and I've gone back and read reviews of that live show saying like, oh, you can totally sense the tension that causing the breakup on stage. That's bullshit. I was there. They were having a great time. The audience was having a great time. That was like a punch to the gut. So after they split, um, Andy Falcus, he got a band together called Future of the Left, which was basically McCluskey with a different bass player. Their first album, um, Curses, which I think came out in 2006, was very, very, very good. Had some follow-up records. Not quite as good. Um, I don't know if they're still around, but I know he still records. He's quite prolific. He's got a project called Christian Fitness that um, manages uh, his quick wit. And um, I think he actually, his wife, might play in the band as, his, uh, as the bass player as well. Really should get back to following them. I think I read on the AV Club, they're the most recent Christian fitness song is just a huge takedown of Morrissey, which the world could use more huge takedowns of Morrissey. But when McCluskey was around for the three records, they burned very brightly, they rocked very hard, and they were witty as all fuck. So I'm going to play uh, To Hell With Good Intentions, which I don't know if it's the definitive McCluskey song, but it's not far off. And you can kind of tell if you like this, you'll like everything else. And also you should follow Andy Falcus on Twitter. I think his handle is at shit rock. Cause that was an old McCluskey shirt. that said shit rock. Cause you know, so let's listen to, to hell with good intentions off of the do Dallas album. <laughs>
right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 35, in which we talked about the Down With Disease, September 12th, 2000. Now that we've been doing some wily episodes here lately, we appreciate you guys sticking with us. Hope you've enjoyed our past uh, guests, Brian Nichols, Stephen Hyden, as well as Kathleen Hinkle. And um, we've got a couple more of these kind of traditional episodes coming here before we kick into summer tour, plus some special stuff coming as well. But before we jump into that, just to recap the songs that we played throughout this episode, in segment one, where we talked about a base odyssey we talked about dark sides paper trails off the album psychic as well as primal screams burning wheel off the album vanishing point in our last section we segment we talked about the end of an era i talked about the walkman's the love you love off of heaven and dave spoke about mccluskey's to hell with good intentions off of do dallas and we both featured new albums, Riley Walker's Death Man Glance and Ice Age Beyondless. So just a reminder, we are active on social media. On Twitter, we're at underscore beyond the pond, one word. Um, our website's on Simplecast. It's beyondthepond.simplecast.fm. On Spotify, we've got the Beyond the Pond podcast song playlist, which we attempt to update within a few hours of um, each episode going live. It's getting quite big, quite unwieldy, but uh, all the songs, to the extent that they're on Spotify, you can uh, find them in that list. also want to talk about um, our podcast network, Osiris. That's osirispod.com. And if you like what you hear, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us a rating. We read them, and it uh, helped boost us up in iTunes, which is always a good thing. Absolutely, absolutely. We need that confidence boost. I don't know how else we're going to do what we do. Um, so in terms of publishing structure, so you guys have probably gotten used to us here. We are not a weekly podcast, though sometimes we pretend to be. Uh, We've been spoiled. You have been. Um, so every other Tuesday, you get a new Beyond the Pond, unless we are feeling generous, which we probably will this summer. Again, let's not be, let's not uh, kid ourselves here. Um, but every other Tuesday, Tuesdays have no feel. Why not go Beyond the Pond? We want to give you guys an opportunity to dig into some new music, take some time to go through our episodes, and then uh, dive into the music that we talk about. And if you've gotten this far in the episode, we thank you very, very much for listening. Also, just a reminder that in 2018, it's harder as ever, harder than ever to make a living as a musician these days. People don't really buy records. So if you like what you hear, go to a concert, buy some merchandise, buy some vinyl, spread the word. You could really do, do everything in your power to uh, throw these bands some coin because uh, they'll need it now more than ever to keep going and on that note i would say come back within two weeks we'll hold hands we'll do some kumbaya we'll definitely be some kind of deep dive of some sort we come together as we go beyond the pond
Osiris.